If you didn't know, we just launched this church like about a month ago. Really fun, really exciting. And uh, thank you. Thank Wow, trendsetter. Wow, you are a leader, Isaac. Good job. Uh, and we are in a teaching series called Spiritual Formation and Practicing the Way. And the hope for this teaching series, uh, for those that are considering us potentially to be your church home, church family, maybe in the future, this entire series will give you a window into who we are and how we'll practice the way of Jesus together. And so far, we've unpacked our uh, first two cultural values being Christ is our core, mission is our mandate, kind of get a sense of what we're talking about in those uh, teachings. If you would like to catch up, you can find us online, Spotify, all the good things. And today, we're starting our third cultural value, which is people are our priority. Uh, and I think to frame today and next week's teaching, because we're going to spend two Sundays unpacking this value, I'm going to read our cultural statement as a church. And so every church usually has these like really helpful statements. Uh, a, a vision statement is often uh, forecasting the direction of what the church is going to be doing. A mission statement is how the church will accomplish that vision. And a cultural statement is kind of like who we are, our values. And so that's what all of these uh, teachings for this entire fall leading into winter is all about. And so this is what our cultural statement is. Passion Church is a community of believers who love God, love others, and love the world. And so today we're specifically going to look at what it means to love others and love the world. And so as Owen read our teaching text today, uh, it's out of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And so here in Paul's letter to the church uh, in Ephesus in the first century, uh, which today would be modern day Turkey, um, he's reminding this like group of young believers uh, just what it means to be the new humanity in Christ. Uh, and there's in this segment of verses, like Paul kind of talks about like this uh, dividing wall of hostility, and there was a lot of tension and conflict in the early church. And so Paul is reminding them what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christ-centered community. And so for us today, in, understand, in understanding this aspect of being the new humanity in Christ, here's what we need to know. The issues, generally, issues of injustice are issues of division, and so division marks the old humanity. And what Paul is talking about in being the new humanity is being marked by one of our favorite words here at Passion Church. I think someone could probably yell it out right now. Cruciformity, all right? That's one of those fun, like, theological words. If you don't know what that word means, uh, to be cruciform, as Google would define it, is to be cross-shaped. And so on a deeper level, cruciformity is to live a cross-shaped life to embody the gospel. And so being the new humanity means a life of cruciformity. We'll get into that. Uh, so let's jump into it. Uh, verses, whoop, verses 11 uh, to 12. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens. Yikes. By the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. This is the New Living Translation. Um, just curious, uh, how many people in this room work in healthcare? Just a quick show of hands. 
Yeah, everyone's like, oh, man, he's going to call on me. Uh, so maybe you've, you've heard this text and you're like, whoa, what is circumcision? For the people that rose their hands, you can ask them afterward what that word means. Um, but I'm not going to explain that. I wouldn't encourage you to Google that either. Uh, so ask them afterwards. But here, Paul identifies two people groups, the Jews and Gentiles. And so it's important to understand some of this cultural context here. Because in the Old Testament, which is like the first part of the Bible, uh, we see this story of this people group called the Israelites. And the Israelites are God's chosen people that the Lord uh, establishes this covenant, this relationship with. The word Gentile simply represents the non-Jewish people. And so from the Israelites, we have the Jewish people. So it's, un- it's important to understand these two people groups because it informs the language that we're seeing here around circumcision. And so the Israelite nation, being God's chosen people, all stems from this covenant promise that was established with the Israelites actually all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 17. Uh, if you have grown up in church, you're familiar with Father Abraham had many sons. We're just going to cap it there. Um, But uh, it starts from Abraham. And so I'm just going to quickly read an excerpt from Genesis 17, 6 to 10, which kind of informs us on what this whole uh, kind of reality of God's chosen people means. Uh, So Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Verse 7, this is important. I will establish my covenant. Covenant simply being this, like, promise as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Let's jump down to verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. This is my promise with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised, dot, dot, dot. There's many other stipulations that are part of this like covenant promise. But for us today in this teaching text, it's really important to understand the significance of the males of Israel being circumcised in regards to this covenant promise. What circumcision represented, circumcision was the outward reality, the physical distinction of an inward reality. Does that make sense? Like it was the outward distinction of an inward reality. It represented their relationship, their covenant, their promise to God, that they were going to uphold the values and what it meant to follow Jesus. This is the Israelites. Uh, In one sense, like, I can't even relate to this illustration because I don't play sports, but it's like wearing a jersey, right? Like, uh, you wear a jersey, it helps you to identify who's on your team, right? Like, that's what it means. Uh, So at first glance, it seems that God himself might be causing this issue of division, right? Because it seems like he's selecting the Israelite nation to be set apart as a part from everyone else, which at first glance, maybe that thought has come up between you. Um, Have you ever wondered that? Why would God establish this covenant with the Israelites particularly? I think we often forget because we see the Israelites kind of fail and mess up time after time. But originally, this covenant promise with Abraham and his descendants after that and after that were supposed to be a blessing to the other nations. Like that was the original reason. And so by choosing Israel and Israel like saying, yes, we're going to fall in your ways. We're going to follow and live and exemplify the Lord in all that we do. God intended for the Israelite nation to be a light to the other nations. That was like the original plan. And sadly, as we see in Israel's history, as we read the Old Testament narratives, they fail 
in doing this. And this isn't simply just an Israel problem. This is just an old humanity problem. This is an issue with our human nature. As we see in the Old Testament, Israel forgets their calling time and time again as they yearn to be like the nations around them. Like that is their MO as we read throughout Scripture. They're always wanting to be like the other nations. But today, how often do we see Christians kind of living their lives like that, yearning to be like those around them? And so over time, in the Old Testament narrative, we see the Israelites twist and almost distort their distinction as God's chosen people into almost like this weird favoritism and elitism over the other nations. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 11 when he's referencing how the Jews would call the Gentiles uncircumcised heathens. Like that would have been very derogatory. The theologian William Barclay describes the division uh, and like the deep animosity that the Jewish people uh, would have for the Gentile. Because I think sometimes we look at scripture, we don't understand how complicated this like conflict was. So he says this, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile in the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. And so we see the polarization that has happened between these two people groups, the Jewish people and the Gentile people. This polarization, this conflict, this animosity has reached a point of no return. It didn't matter who you were, what you stood for, even if being the nicest person, if you were from the other people group, you were hated. There was no opportunity or chance for friendship or anything because it was just you were from the other group. And, you know, today we can see a very similar parallel in this animosity in humanity, right? We see the divide on any subject, any category we can think of politics, we can think of um, gender, we can think of social class, we can think of vaccination, we can even say Apple or Android, right? There's like dividing lines everywhere in life. There's always a reason to not like someone. Division, injustice. This is what marks the old humanity. And so what does the Lord do to solve this issue that came from sin, as we see in Genesis 3? Well, the Father, the Lord, he sends his only son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to elaborate on in verses 13 and 14. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. What is Paul referring to when he mentions this wall of hostility? Because the fact that Paul is mentioning this in his letter to the Ephesians is a very big deal. 
And uh, we have a screen of, uh, sorry, a screen. We have a picture that I think we'll have. Yeah, there it is. Um, so this would have represented like the temple at the time where uh, people like the Jewish people and even Gentile believers, again, non-Jewish people would come and worship the Lord uh, because it was uh, in the temple where God's presence uh, would have dwelt. And so we see that in the Old Testament. Um, and we can, we can uh, scroll on to the next photo there. Uh, which might be a little bit more helpful. And so on this side is kind of like the overarching um, picture of how it's all kind of separated. And so we see, if you don't have 20-20 vision, uh, the kind of orange part on like the perimeter, it says court of the Gentiles. And so people that were not Jewish people but followed the Lord, they were allowed to be there. Um, If you were a Jewish person, you could come within that green part. Uh, We have on the right side uh, a specific section for the women. Then on the left side, we have a specific session where specific, this is a lot of alliteration, specific section where only the priests could be. And then on the right side, we kind of have like a zoom in here. We got like the the holy place and then we have the most holy place where uh, they would have understood God's presence to like literally manifest and dwell. And so as Paul is saying and mentioning this physical wall separating Jews and Gentiles, this wall of hostility. He's referring to that kind of like green wall because the Gentiles were not allowed in. They were so far. They were kept at a distance. And that that's, was the reality of the believers in this first century context. And so what Paul is trying to say is like this physical wall no longer carries any value. Because it is through Christ Jesus, the atonement that is Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that has broken down all walls and all barriers. Everyone has an opportunity, has an equal access to being in relationship with the Lord. And so this wall carries no meaning, no value. It is an antique of the past. And so what Paul's trying to say is like, we can't be thinking about that reality because we live in a new reality. It has no significance, this wall. I think of like, um, I was chatting with, uh, I think you guys, I don't know, whoever, doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, Generation Alpha is everyone, and it kind of sounds weird to hear, right? Generation Alpha, there's a Generation Alpha. I think it's everyone born after the 2010s. Is it? No. Somewhere there, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the specifics. But that generation will never know that there used to be a time where you would only need one streaming platform, which was Netflix. Now we need 12, and we have to find partners because it's too expensive. And so what Paul is essentially saying, right? He's saying, this doesn't matter. Like, all of this doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's a thing of the past. What matters now is is following Jesus. Jesus has made the invisible God visible, right? That's what Paul is trying to say. And so how does Christ accomplish this? What, What actually happened on the cross, Well, he explains that in verses 15 and 16. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself, that being Jesus, one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. And so what law does Jesus put an end to here? Well, it seems like Paul is referring to what is the ceremonial law. And so the ceremonial law would have been all the laws that had all the rules and regulations that were originally for the Israelite people. 
like what we talked about earlier, that initially set them apart from all the nations as God's chosen people. That's a ceremonial law. And so those were the regulations like circumcision. It was ritual cleanliness. It was all the offerings. There was all kinds of offerings. You can read Leviticus. It was crazy. But that was all in, encompassed in the ceremonial law. Um, and remember, these regulations uh, were the outward physical distinction that represented that inward reality of following the Lord that set the Israelites apart. However, at the same time, it seems like Paul is also referring to the moral law. Not in the sense of like getting rid of the standard of our moral behavior, but as a means to salvation. You don't have to work your way to salvation. You don't have to earn it. Like that doesn't matter because Christ has done all things on the cross. And so what Paul is trying to explain is that Jesus has abolished the regulations of the ceremonial law, but he's also abolished the condemnations of the moral law. Both laws, both things had become divisive, and both were put to rest on the cross. And so Paul finishes up by stating the unity that comes through the cross. And uh, Ben, you can make your, up, make your way up well, whenever you want but I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 19, 22. So here's what Paul says as he can, kind of concludes this thought to the Ephesians. So now you Gentiles, again, those that weren't Jewish people, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lived by his spirit. And so when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, he became the ultimate sacrifice, closing the gap that sin had created. We are restored into living union relationship with God himself. And so what Paul is describing, he's saying as the new humanity, we have access to God. In the same way that uh, Jesus was God's presence on earth, as his church, we are God's presence to people. And so not only is Paul kind of writing off this wall of hostility just between Jews and Gentiles, but it's for all people. Everyone has the equal opportunity has the the opportunities for access to be in living relationship with God. And so what Paul, what his big idea is, he's saying we, as a new humanity, as followers of Jesus, we are the new temple. Um, In Greek, one of the words that describes that, like uh, on that screen was like the most holy place was like the naos. It was a dwelling place of God. And that same Greek word described for our hearts, where God's presence now resides and abides in our hearts. The naos of our own being, God's presence dwells. This is what it means to be the new humanity in Christ. This is what the church is supposed to be in our day and age and always has been. God isn't tied to a holy people. Sorry, I said that wrong. Let me restart. God isn't tied to a holy building. Here we go. He's tied to a holy people. And so, you know, for us, we're really particular about our language. I'm almost annoying where people are like, yeah, I'm going to church. I'm like, what, where? You mean the sound house? You mean our building like that we rent? Like, because we are the church. If we all decide to go to Nemesis, we are the church there because we are his people. God isn't tied to a holy building. He's tied to a holy people. 
in the first century, and this is to, to kind of conclude, but it was so radical to be Christians, to follow Jesus. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, um, there were all kinds of dividing walls. Uh, if you were a slave, uh, you didn't have just regular human rights. Like, you were less than human. We have a whole book in the New Testament called Philemon. Uh, Philemon was a slave. He runs away from his master, Onesimus. And he encounters Paul. There's, I don't even know what happens there. I'd have to reread the book. This is off the dome right now. Uh, but he comes to know the Lord. And so as he begins to follow Jesus, Paul's like, hey, you actually have to go back to your master because that's the right thing to do. That's the Christ-like thing to do. But by the way, I'll, I'll write a letter for your master to read. And that's the book of Philemon. That's the letter. Um, sorry, Onesimus ran away. And then Philemon's the off the dome. So I'd have to, you can verify. But anyways, uh, but uh, I think it's Philemon because it, it would have been written to Philemon. That makes more sense. Uh, Onesimus was a slave, ran away. Comes to know the Lord, given the letter Philemon to Philemon the master. That makes sense. But anyways, in this letter, it's reminding Philemon that uh, now they are both brothers in Christ because he was actually already a Christian. And uh, what he says in the letter is now you are both slaves to Christ. And what it means to follow Jesus, it completely inverts your status. And so if you were coming into a room of believers in the first century, whether you were living in the upper echelons of the Roman Empire with Caesar himself, or if you were a slave with no rights, you come into the church, you are both equal. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And that's something that we as a church today have to come back to. What it means to follow Jesus, as we see at the end of Mark in the Gospels, is to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, to elevate the needs of people around us. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And for those that encounter a church or a Christian community that just diagnoses people's problems is just an encounter with the old humanity. But a person that encounters Christians that has no other agenda other than to follow God faithfully and do good and elevate those around them, that has a life changer.